Yes, Father, you are worthy of it all. Father, I pray that tonight we would be found in that posture of absolute heartfelt devotion to you, casting our crowns and everything that is within us before the feet of the Lamb, the one who has redeemed us and saved us, taken us out of the miry clay and put our feet on a rock. So Father, I pray that this evening, that rock, that revelation of Christ would cement us and have us living with our feet firmly fixed on you and our eyes firmly set on the heavenly and eternal call that you have for us as your children. So Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would bring clarity and light, bring to light the eternal counsel of your will and of your word, which is the person of Christ. May he be revealed within us in a new and fresh way. In Jesus' name. Good evening, everyone. It's, um, it's times like tonight that we almost feel like we've heard the sermon before we get to the sermon, eh? You know? uh, and I think that that's the beauty of true praise, true worship. You know, I think uh, I know what's burning on my heart this evening is that we as the church of God would come into this posture that we were just singing about, that we would be on our needs, casting our crowns before the glory of the Lord. And that's, you know, it says that is what the elders are doing. And this is not just people with a title. This is us as we grow in maturity as the body of Christ will be found completely flawed before the one who truly is worthy of it all. Man, that is so boomy. Is that... Oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah. All right. Is that all right? Keep going. All right, I'm keep going. All right, who's been enjoying this Ephesian series? It's been awesome, eh? You know, like I, I feel like I was, I was just meditating on what the series has looked like so far. I was just reminded of the scene from my childhood. And we we used to have these school galas you know, like once every couple of years, and we had what we called the shelter shed, which is just this big old shed. And in the school gala, it was almost like a tradition. I don't know if you guys remember this. Um, but in the shelter shed, there would be all of this old crockery that would be set up. Man, it was awesome. And you paid like $3, and you got a cricket ball, and you could smash the crap out of as much crockery as you wanted. <laughs> And man, I, I feel like this is what this Ephesian series has been doing. We've been smashing the crap out, <laughs> out, of, out of mindsets, ways of thinking, heart postures that have been so ingrained in Christianity for the past 2,000 years. And so he's, you know, it says that of the prophet Isaiah that he was put there to tear down 
but to raise up. And so we've been tearing down and raising up. We've been clearing away old foundations so that the new ones can be established in their place. And I feel like I've got a cricket ball in my hand this evening. <laughs> you know, and this is, this is what Paul calls true spiritual warfare. Have you, that, that phrase spiritual warfare is one of the most mucked up, weird terms that you come across generally in the modern church. Generally it involves shouting down like different locations, talking to angels, anything like mystical and weird. But actually Paul says that the true spiritual warfare is tearing down strongholds in the mind of the body of Christ which have been raised up against the knowledge of God. And so throughout the course of this, this series, as we look at Ephesians and the eternal purpose of God, we're tearing down strongholds that have been raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are entering into a true knowledge, having our feet, like I've prayed, set on a firm foundation, which is the revelation of Christ as he actually is. So I hope you're excited this evening. I'm not sure how it's gonna. I'm not sure how it's gonna roll. I feel like I'm less prepared than I've ever been. <laughs> so let's just kind of go with it and see where we get to. If that's cool. Kirk's looking like Kirk's gonna give us a live demo of what. <laughs> Is that within your budget, Kirk? I'm not sure. <laughs> All right. So let, let's start this evening. We're up, we're up to Ephesians chapter 2. The title is this. Now, I love these titles. Made Alive in Christ. Made Alive in Christ. And I'm just going to give you a little taster of the beast that we're about to tackle. And then I'll give you a bit of context to how it is that we need to see this beast if we're going to take it down. All right? Ephesians 2 verse 1. All right, listen carefully. No more jokes. All right? Chapter 2, verse 1. Can you turn there if you have your Bibles? Because we're going to do a bit of expository preaching tonight. We're just going to work our way through the Scriptures. Ephesians 2, chapter 1. This is your taste test, all right? Okay, it starts like this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. My goodness, that is heavy. Oh, wait, no, it's weighty. It's, this is a, a weighty passage. And for so long, this has been the starting point of the church. They've started in this place talking about trespasses, talking about sin, talking about rebellion, talking about the things that have gotten intertangled between us and God and have led us astray. But actually, according to the scriptures and the eternal counsel of God, this is not supposed to be the starting point of the church. In actual fact, this chapter, chapter 2, it starts with this word. It starts with and. Where's Steph? 
She's not here tonight, but I'll be pulling on her as an English teacher to say, why in the world would you start a sentence with the word and, let alone a chapter? And is not a starting word, it's a connecting word. It's a linking word. And for 2,000 years, the church here on earth have taught that the starting point is your sin, is your rebellion, is your trespasses that have separated you from God. But in actual fact, when we look at Ephesians and we dive into the eternal purpose of God, Ephesians chapter 2 comes after chapter 1. And so we start with not a problem, but an eternal promise that God has given the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, the ands flows through and connects an issue that we see here that wasn't even about the loss. You know, it says in, at the start, this chapter, when we look back at Ephesians chapter 1, it says this, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not on an evangelistic campaign in chapter 2, bringing to light the sins and the trespasses of the people. He's bringing to light a posture that these Christians are potentially living from. And so we're going to look at that in a second. But you'll be totally lost on chapter 2 if you don't understand the context that is in chapter 1. If you've got your eyes fixed on an issue and on a problem, when you start this, you'll completely miss the eternal promise, the eternal call, the eternal purpose that the entire book of Ephesians is supposed to be about. And in a perfect world, when we have been meditating and eating day in, day out on the scriptures and on the messages that we've heard from the last four weeks, we wouldn't need to go back and revisit the eternal promise. We'd be rearing, ready to go, but I think we may as well just preach this message whole so that you get a good context coming in, flowing through to these weighty scriptures that we're about to look at. Is that cool? So I'm going to come back to chapter 1, and we're going to start looking at the eternal promise that defines these verses that we're about to look at. Cool? Let's take a breather. All right, calm down. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. That is a big promise. So Greg shared about this last week, and I just want to bring a little bit more to light. And so these words here, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge. Most other translations say, who is given as a deposit. A deposit of our inheritance with a view to what? To to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Can anyone think of a modern day context where we would use a deposit? Buying a house, buying land, exactly. So when we, when we think about this promise, we have to think about it in the context of a deposit that's been made. 
And so in this context, can you tell me, who made the, the deposit? Sorry? Is it us or is it God? Or who? God? Yep, absolutely. So God has made a deposit. And what has he made the deposit for? What's he purchasing? He's purchased us. Okay? So God has decided, just like you would when you buy a house, to make a deposit. He's put... He's seen something of value, something that he wants, something that he desires. And he said, cool, I'm not going to let that to chance. I'm going to pay the deposit. I'm going to make the down payment. And I'm going to claim you, the church of God, as my own possession. Isn't that a promise and a, and a half? Who has given a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So when you buy a, or when you put down a deposit on a house, who then has the ownership of that house? The bank or the purchaser? The purchaser, absolutely. So when you buy a house, that you put down a down payment and you own completely the house that you have purchased. So God, in, in his eternal wisdom, has chosen to make a deposit, make a down payment to purchase the church of God as a people of his own possession. Right? With me? So this is the context leading into chapter 2. The church of God have been paid for, ransomed, purchased by the blood of Christ, and a deposit has been given the Holy Spirit with a view to the future of full, total possession. Not just technically, but in total reality of the church of God. Do you believe that? That God could be within you to such a measure that it is no longer you that live, but him that lives within you. That the kingdom is so formed and real within you that his government has come to such a measure that you no longer are ruled and governed by yourself, but by him. Now, this is absolutely and totally important because if we don't see that God is the purchaser and we are the purchase, then we'll spend our whole lives trying to pay off a house that has already been bought. We'll work and strive and struggle to enter into a promise that has actually already been given to us. We will live as slaves instead of bond servants. What's the difference? A slave lives their whole life working, toiling, striving in the hope of one day being made free. A bondservant is set free, entirely, completely purchased, and then lives his entire life willingly submitting, lovingly devoting themselves in freedom to the one that's purchased them. Does that make sense? So he's purchased us, and we're now bond servants of Christ. We 
have to see this because if we don't, we'll be caught up in this other position trying to work our way to freedom as opposed to living from the freedom that he has purchased, okay? So this is the context moving into Ephesians chapter 2. And like I mentioned before, Paul is talking not to the unsaved, but he's talking to the church. He's talking to the children of God. And the sense that I get when I read this the first time was it, it almost sounds to me like, like he's talking to teenage kids who have been brought up in immense prosperity but don't know it. Now, the condition of the world today is more a reflection of what is in the heavenly and eternal realms than what we know. Because I would say that the overarching theme of modern youth that I work a lot with is not, oh, and I work with some of the poorest, and yet they are not aware of their poverty. Uh, that they, how do I say, they are absolutely and totally unaware of how privileged they are. And that's their issue. The issue that they have is not their poverty, it's their prosperity. And the fact that they are in something but cannot see it. And so this is what I believe that Paul is, ad is addressing in Ephesians chapter 2. And he says this, he says, And you were dead. So he's not talking about where they are, he's talking about where they were, right? So when you hear this, he's, he's trying to remind them, he, he's trying to, he's not, Paul is not someone to bring up their past to try and peg them to it and condemn them of what they once were. He's, he's, bring, he's saying, and you were dead in your trespasses. He's saying, this is not about pulling them down. This is about being aware of where they've come from so that they can see the value of what he's brought them into. Okay? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly, oh, formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working, excuse me, in the sons of disobedience. Let me just turn this. Dead in your transitions, uh, transgressions and sins according to the course of this world. What a fascinating link. What does it mean to be dead? What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, Paul defines it. He says it's to walk according to the course of this world. Interesting. Did you know that the world has a course? It has a direction. It's going for something. And generally the issue that we have is not that we are gunning for it, it's that we're drifting and we find ourselves caught up in what the world values. We find ourselves more concerned about our work and our lives than we do about the eternal purposes of God. And so Paul defines it here. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? To walk according to the course of this world. Interesting, eh? You know, I had an interesting conversation with Varna from Cambodia when he was over here a little while back. 
and he talked about the the challenges of being a Christian minister in a nation like Cambodia. And he said that in this modern day and age, there's so much international support and funding available that these big international churches or organizations come and they offer heaps of money to these impoverished little ministries that are going on. But he said there's always a catch and there's always something that seems to happen is that they go from serving God and putting God's and his eternal purpose at the forefront of their minds and at their focus to all of a sudden they're now feeding the poor. They're now setting up medical clinics. All of these things which are really good and right but are totally disconnected from the ultimate and eternal purpose that he has for them as his people. And so this is what it means to walk according to the course of this world. It means that somewhere along the line, there's been a disconnect. Where your priorities have shifted, your focus has shifted. And this, Paul is saying, is the, the, the greatest potential danger to these Christians in their walk. It's not the gross immoral sins it's the drift of the world as they would subtly and slowly move into something that is good but absolutely and totally misses eternal glory. We can compromise for what is good and totally and completely miss out the eternal weight of glory that he's calling us into. And this is the danger here that Paul is addressing. Now remember, these people have been purchased. They belong to him. And so what he's, say, what he's not saying is that this disqualifies you from the promise. No. He's saying, you've received this promise. You've been ransomed. You've been purchased. You've been bought with a price. Now live like it. And don't just wait. Don't be, what does it say? A dog that returns to its own vomit. Don't go back to what you were eating before. Stay focused, stay fixed. Hold on to the prize. And so when I was talking with Vana, I was, man, this is universal. This is global. This is worldwide. And we see it in so many church communities today that, that you can be, this thing is so deceptive that it doesn't necessarily just have to be good works. It can be good Christian Bible teachings. But ultimately, if it's not leading the people of God into this eternal relationship with God, it's going to be burnt up and it's worthless. Now, Jesus was tempted by the devil and he was offered, can, can anyone remember the three things that he was offered? Or one of them? What is that? Turn stones into bread? Yep. Throw yourself off the temple. And what's the third one? Worship me. He was offered, he said, he said to him this, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if only you would bow down and worship me you can have all of the kingdoms you can have all of 
the earthly success. You can have all of the Christian success. You can have all of the good deeds. You can set up an organization that helps feed the poor, that rari, rari, rari. You can work at work and income and be the most amazing social worker. He was offered all of the kingdoms of the earth if only he would change the ultimate object of his affection and worship. That there is the knife edge that divides soul and spirit. Right there on that one decision is hinging all of eternity. And it's what we're confronted with day in, day out. Are we living according to the course of this world or are we living according to the heavenly course, the heavenly call that he has for his church here on the earth? Because the church is the only organ, organ, how do I say, organism, the only people here on earth that can radiate the fragrance of that which is truly eternal, no one else. And that is our mission. He was offered, he said, Throw yourself off this temple and the angels will catch you and bear you up on their wings. Jesus, display, throw yourself off, not a cliff off the temple. Highlight your superior spirituality. Show off. Put on a face. Put your best foot forward. You know that God's got you. Interesting. That we can live our entire lives looking to play the Christian part, polishing the outside of the cup, but inside be whitewashed tombs. Once again, we're on a knife edge. What's more valuable to us, our reputation? or the eternal weight of glory. Interesting, eh? What was the third one? Turn these stones. Turn these stones into bread. Fasting for 40 days. Why don't you use God for your own personal gain? Wait, no, this is not about trying to get a Maserati like our friend. <laughs> this is food. This is, it's, I'm pretty sure it's humanly impossible to fast for 40 days with no food and no water. And at the end of that 40 days, that's the first time they hear that Jesus was hungry. So he, right here, we have another knife edge. Human provision, that which is good, that which we need for our lives, our food, our clothing, our shelter. Is that the ultimate desire that we have? Is it for earthly things? Is it for our own needs? Or would we not rather physically die than step out to step outside of his will and outside of the eternal promise that he has. The room is so quiet. I hope that you are 
follow, <laughs> I hope that you're following me. But we've got three tight ropes that we need to walk. And each one of them, if we take a step either way, we're done. We're gone. And yet, I, I use that not to say be fearful of slipping because that's not what this is about at all. This is saying this is how faithful God is to keep us firmly fixed on his eternal purpose. I hope that's what you're hearing um, as I'm saying this. It shouldn't be condemning. It should fill us with hope that, the, that, like I said, this is why I had to preface this with chapter one to say that you're being called and chosen. Now, hey, walk in the same manner that Christ walked in. Okay. Next verse. Oh, no, same verse. Next line. According to the prince. I'll read, oh, sorry, let me just read from the start again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan, absolutely. So can you be a born-again Christian and live according to the prince of the power of the air? What does it, what does it mean for something to be in the air? They sing songs about it. Lovers in the air. <laughs> That's the only time you'll probably ever hear me sing. Just, just saying that. <laughs> when something's in the air, it means that everyone in the atmosphere is getting caught up in this thing. At the moment, it's the housing crisis. Everyone's getting caught up in this need to, to buy a house. It could be anything. But there's a course and are we drifting as the world drifts, just going with the flow? Or are we fixed, steadfast, immovable on the eternal promise of God? You know, there's time and time again that we see in the life of Jesus and the people that he encounters, the difference between those who are living with this, what? Um, the Bible actually describes as a satanic mindset. That's how destructive it is. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because you have your mind set on man's interests and not on God. It reminds me of Jesus and this woman with the alabaster vial of perfume. And I I don't have this in my notes, but I just, I hope this is the right scenario where the disciples say, couldn't this be sold and the money be given to the poor? Wouldn't that be a much better use of time, resource to feed the poor than to excessively lavish devotion upon 
the soon-to-be bridegroom. Oh, um, actually, yes, it would be a better use of resource to completely, I was going to say waste, but actually it wasn't a waste at all. It was a calculated act of radical devotion, one that had eternal substance and glory attached to it. And one group of people, the disciples, those who were the closest to him, were living with thinking that was ultimately of this world. They were living according to the prince of the power of the air, who says, hey, this is a wise investment of your money, but completely misses the eternal weight of glory. Interesting. On the whole, the church is totally unaware of the principalities and powers that govern in the heavenly realms. And yet we as the church are mandated to make a demonstration to these principalities and powers that ultimately flabbergast them, is what Paul says, not in those words, <laughs> but confound them, confuse them, because the way that they see and operate is so earthly, and yet to see a body of people who were born into the same way of thinking and operating that they are, all of a sudden, having encountered Christ and having been transformed and called into this eternal purpose, living on the earth, not anchored to the earth, living for the priorities and the call of heaven, it confounds them. They don't understand because all they know is selfishness, greed, me first. My, Do you see what I'm saying? So they're confronted by a people called the church. And I'm not going to go too much into it tonight. It'll be some lucky person, whoever gets the opportunity to unpack that baby. But it says in Ephesians chapter 3 that the church is called to make a demonstration to the principalities and powers in the unseen heavenly realms. Are these principalities and powers even in your consciousness? Hopefully, as of tonight, you're aware of their game, which is just that you'd be drifting down the stream, living according to the course of this earth, completely oblivious, the ultimate eternal call and promise that God has for us as his people. And according to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. <laughs> Sorry, I saw Sandra's face smiling. This is not a funny scripture. <laughs> <laughs> the spirit that is now at work in the sons. The sons. The sons of disobedience. Can you be a son of disobedience? Oh my goodness. A son. You're called and chosen as a son, and yet you live like a slave. He's not saying they're not sons, he's saying they're sons but they're operating by another spirit, by another way of thinking, by another operating system. If you want to look more into that, a good passage, if you're writing notes, is write down John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And you can dig a little bit more into that one.
All right. Chapter 2, up to verse number 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I told you this is a weighty passage. What's interesting is he doesn't say by a despicable action, by your unbelievable lifestyle. No, by nature, children of God, even as the rest. Now, I just want to remind you that he, the context here is he's talking to the church and he's trying to bring to light what they've been saved from and what they've been saved for or saved into. And so the context here, he's likely talking to people who are Gentiles, but he's a Jew. And so ultimately, or there's already a natural divide between them where he's come from this religious, traditional background. And the likelihood is that they've probably come from being in the world. And he's saying, guys, we are ultimately the same. We, we all are by nature children of wrath. Now, this is an important point because for many of us like myself have, I'd say this, my history is not a history of sex, drugs and rock and roll necessarily. I've come from the other extreme where actually I won the award for the most outstanding student <laughs> at school. Pretty much my whole life, when I was at youth group, I got the most, I don't know what the award was, it was like the most Christian of the Christians. <laughs> I was an A-plus student, I was on the dean's list, I was as good as good can be. And this is where Paul came from. And he says, according to the law, I was found blameless. If anyone's good, it's me. I was so good. I ticked all the boxes, trained under Gamaliel. Let's read it. I think it's um, Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, just for a bit of context. He says this, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Let's be honest, I'm probably the best person here in this room. <laughs> Is what he's saying. I was the captain of the goody goods. I wasn't just a standard goody good. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. This was one top dog. This is one good guy. Found blameless. Has, does anyone else feel but they have the confidence to stand up here and say, I was found blameless according to the law that has 613 commandments that you have to keep day in and day out, not just in action, but in heart. I was found blameless. This is that poor. 
And this man who's been running strong is about to get grass-cutted by Jonah Lomu. <laughs> In comparison, when he compares himself to the one of promise, to the Messiah Christ himself, he is flawed. And this was me. This is where I had come from, that growing up as an, a teenager, good as good can be, some things happened that it wasn't like it was a knock to my confidence. Getting caught up in things that weren't really that bad, but I had a series of events where I had you know, a girlfriend which ended up being quite a bad relationship. My granddad, who was one of my heroes, decided that he would deny his faith. And all of a sudden, the things that my some of the things my life had been founded of were swept right from under my feet and it felt like I was in a spiritual washing machine not knowing which way was up and which way was down and there was a desperate cry that came from the depths of my heart that I didn't know what to do with and so I went and sat in the bush because I didn't I didn't know how to I didn't know how to pray I didn't know how to read the felt like I didn't know how to read the bible and I just cried out to God and said, God, if you're even there, I need to know you. And it was at that time that there was something that happened in my heart and I just said, there was a time and I just remember sitting there and I said, God, I love you. And as I said that, those words, it was almost like they went from just being words and they were formed on my heart. And the confidence that I had had in myself had been completely smashed to a zillion pieces. The confidence that I had had in others like my granddad who I held up as being the pinnacle of spirituality, were completely smashed and on the ground. The testimony seems, uh, almost feels like whatever. But at that time, it was a spiritual crisis that had to happen for me where I was completely, had the rug swept out from under my feet and could not put any confidence in my own walk up until that point, and I had to start again and start afresh, and it set my life on another course. And so we all, by nature, are children of wrath, even as the rest. You know, I sit at work and income with some of the most broken of people, and in my heart of hearts, it's almost, I'm like, yeah, I know that. I know that brokenness. I know that pain. Not, not the situation. I don't know what they've been through, but I know the depth of brokenness and separation and lack of substance and life in my inner core. And so it's almost like this is, this is what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to floor all of us that by nature we were children of wrath, even as the rest. Let's have a look at Colossians chapter 2. Oh, yes. So what... Okay. Back to what we were talking about before. Paul, 
a, a religious man needed to be broken of his old operating system and made new and come alive into this new one. So in verse 20, it says this, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you are living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things designed to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are no value against fleshly indulgence. So he's saying, I had a form of spirituality that lacked substance. And he's saying to these Colossians, similar to what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, he's saying, why now that you're free, now that you've been made sons, are you submitting back again to the elementary teachings of the law? Why are you coming back into this way of operating where you're abiding by these commandments that say, do not, ta uh, uh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? He says these things are designed to perish with use. He said these things are earthly they're temporary, they hold no value. He's saying, he's saying this, these matters which have to be sure have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, self-abasement. What's self-abasement? It's false humility. Almost like trying to crucify yourself and severe treatment of the body, but are no value against fleshly indulgence. So like Paul and like myself, I had a form of godliness, yet when the rubber hit the road, I didn't have the guts to be able to follow through on what I truly believed. I claimed to, to love God and know him with my lips, but really the reality and the mess that I had made with my life highlighted excuse me, that I was living a shadow that had no value against fleshly indulgence. This, and how do I say, living this lifestyle has no power over the sway of the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and if that was not enough, your own flesh that is like a magnet to those things. And he's saying, I need it to be flipped. You know how you have the two poles on a magnet? The thing that it used to attract, now it deflects, and the things that it used to reflect, it now attracts. All right, let's move on. How are we doing for time? What's the time? I'll just sum it up and then I'll just bring in the good stuff and then we'll finish up. All right, by nature, 
children of wrath, even as the next. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this is so important because like I said at the beginning, remember, this gospel is not a matter of good and bad. This gospel is not a matter of a, a transgression and forgiveness of sins. This is the eternal gospel that Paul is preaching. No, John, he saw in Revelation, it says this, he says, I saw an angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to preach to those who were on the earth. And so Paul is saying this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but Christ has raised you up together with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is the power of the gospel, not to forgive you from sin, but to take you from living according to the course of this world and turn you and flip you from living from, from the, the course of religiosity and pride and snap you and break you and bring you into this life where all of a sudden you're living for the things that are heavenly and eternal. This is the gospel. This is what we're called for. This is a house that's truly been paid off by God and not by ourselves. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. This is just the start. The grace that's been given to us now but it will take all of eternity to bring to light the goodness of God and the faithfulness his faithfulness to bring us into everything that he has on offer I think it's probably a good place to stop um, some of the questions might relate to some of the stuff a bit further down um, but I think that's probably enough to chew on for now. Um, I just want to say, does anyone have any questions before we move on to like discussing in groups? Anything that they need clarity on or um, didn't make sense or any comments? No, none at all. Crystal clear, too easy. Nailed it, smashed it, got it. Cool. All right. Thanks, Rochelle. Thanks, guys.